1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 to 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious, this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, Peter began his letter, if you recall, by rejoicing with us about the inheritance that has been granted to us through Jesus Christ, an inheritance that is now set aside for us in heaven. Do you recall that context to this letter where he began back in chapter 1 and verse 3? To refresh your memory, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That was the glorious opening context of this letter. And as we push now uh, deep into chapter 2, I think we should reflect on that context a little bit more and, and specifically that we might ask the question, why is that inheritance that Peter speaks of set aside for us? Why does God not take us? Those who have come to faith in Jesus, why does he not take us into that inheritance as soon as we are saved? As good as this life is, it is surely a long way short of, of our eternal glory in heaven. 
And then on the other hand, this world that we're in sometimes isn't all that keen on us being here at times, is it? So, so why are we still here? Why are we still in this world if, if we're destined for heaven? What is God's plan in this? What is his will for you and I that, that he should leave us here in this world for the time being? Well, that question's deliberately way too big for the time we have in front of us this afternoon, and there's probably so many dimensions of the answer there. I said it there more as an overarching kind of framework for those thoughts that we might have time for this afternoon. Although, having said that, Peter did give us one angle on the answer to that question in the same opening section of his letter. He said in chapter 1 and verse 6, in this truth of our inheritance and so on, in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So one of the things God is doing with us while we live out this life in in what is obviously not yet heaven uh, is testing our faith so that it will prove genuine because this refined, tested, proven genuine faith will result in praise and honour and glory when Jesus does come to take us home. As we push on through the rest of chapter 2 today, as I say, Peter, Peter speaks more of this. He gives us another angle on that question, actually, why God has left us here in, in this world. But, but even more so, I think, he starts dealing now with the how of all this. Uh, since we're to stay here for now, having our, refi- our faith refined by the various trials and so forth of this life, how should we conduct ourselves while we walk out that faith? What will our proving genuine faith look like in practice? And in a nutshell, I think we could sum up the whole reading there of what he does say about this uh, just by saying we are to be in this world but not of this world. In the world, but not of the world. And while the reason for us to still be in the world, as I say, might be just way too big and complex for us to think about today, the reason for us to not be of the world is really quite simple. Uh, Because our soul was once uh, governed by the futile passions of, of this world that we are in, but now our soul has been rescued by Jesus. Our identity is, is not of this world anymore, and so nor should our conduct be of this world anymore. We can see the two things nicely, I think, if, if we just look at the bookends to the passage we just read in, in verse 11 at the start and then verse 25 at the end. Verse 11, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then at the end, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A sojourner is a temporary resident, someone uh, whose true home is elsewhere, someone who's just living here for the time being. And that's us, brothers and sisters, uh, who believe in Jesus Christ. We're, We're living in the world for now, but our true home is where that inheritance is kept aside for us in heaven. And, uh, well, the other word there that follows, exiles in our ESV translation, is, is actually just another synonym of that first word, 
sojourner. So think pilgrim, think foreigner, uh, someone who's just staying here as a visitor for the time being. Peter opens this passage reminding us that we're we're just in the world uh, for the time being. This is not our home. Although the old passions of this place we're living in want to reinstate our residency here. They're vying for our soul, verse 11. As if they might take us captive and keep us here and keep us away from our true heavenly home. The passions of the flesh, as Peter puts it, these are the sinful desires that still linger inside us and that the world around us is constantly tempting us with all the while that we do stay here. We need to be strong against those desires, says Peter, because they are fighting as if to regain control of our soul and they will do us harm. But we, having come to Christ, have returned to the shepherd and the overseer, the carer of our soul, verse 25. Again, Peter's got two synonyms there, but the message is simple and the message is comforting if you think about it. Christ has claimed our souls as his. He has destined us for eternal life with him and and therefore we, we no longer truly belong to this world. We must stay mindful of whose we are now as we push on in the here and now. Because while that word there in verse 25, returned, makes it sound as if we've already got full closure on all of this, well, we know, of course, that this world that we're lodging in now is is surely not the inheritance for which we wait, is it? But there is great comfort as we wait. There is a grounded stability that comes to us in knowing that we are walking through this life under the watchful care of our good and faithful shepherd. And he will not fail us. He will not fail us. Under his care, the closure to come, that the inheritance, well, it's most surely ours. We should be careful against those passions that seek our harm, yes, of course, but we need have no fear in the end. So we're left to live in the world for now, but we're not to live as the world lives and as we once lived when we had not come to Christ. Now that we have come to Christ, we should live in the knowledge that our home forever is with him. And it changes everything when that starts to sink in. Let's look through the passage then and, and think about this twofold hand-in-hand kind of concept. That, that yes, we are to be in the world as Christians, but not of the world in how we live. Uh, from the beginning, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are sojourners, visitors, living for now among unbelievers, unbelievers all around us, or Gentiles, as Peter puts it. They do evil and they even speak against us, just as the old sinful desires inside us are still waging war against us too. But but. Nevertheless, we are to live godly lives that abstain from sin and and produce good fruit to the glory of God, contrary to the surrounding culture in which we live. This is our call. Another reality then about our temporary stay here in this wider world naturally unfolds from this truth, that in many of our relationships, 
people will have some kind of earthly authority over us. Like our parents, or our teachers, or our supervisors, or bosses, or or the various government officials all around us and so forth. And because of where we still are, those people may not, or, or may not yet, belong to the shepherd of souls, as we do. Many of these people will still be unbelieving. Many will be pursuing worldly passions. That's just how it will be in this place if we understand this dynamic tension. And as part of keeping our own conduct among unbelieving people honourable, we're called to respect those authority figures, whoever they may be. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honour the king. It is not good to disrespect others. It is not good to rebel against those in authority. Even when those in authority over us are evil, belonging to this world and and carrying out various worldly evils and injustices against us even, it it is just not good that we should respond in disrespect or in rebellion against that authority that they have. But we are called to do good in response, and we are called to accept their authority over us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust ones. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. These are very perplexing words if we are honest. Those words cut against the worldly grain that still runs through us. But clearly we need to be realigned by the truth of the gospel because twice Peter says it here that that it is somehow a gracious thing if we do what is good and suffer at the hands of unjust worldly authorities for doing so. Instinctively, what would we do? We would rise up, wouldn't we? We would argue and defend against this. We would fight this injustice. But here, twice, we are called to endure. This is a very hard word to hear, but there it is in black and white in the word of God. We don't respond in kind to those worldly people. We do good. For the Lord's sake, verse 13, for we are his. We are servants of God. I don't think Peter is implying here 
that we should encourage their injustice against us or that we should seek it or desire that injustice against us or that we should you know, prosper them so that their ungodliness is rewarded. On the contrary, there's something in the respect that we show them, as verse 18 says, and, and the good that we do, as verse 15 has it, there's something in that that's going to bring about a positive change in some of those people. Nor should we think, if we extrapolate out a bit, that we wouldn't choose you know, a more godly person to be in authority over us if that was an option. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians, we're even told that slaves should avail themselves of any opportunity to be free from, from that authority structure altogether, if that's an option. But as Paul nevertheless goes on to say there, and just as Peter is saying here too, we just need to be content content that whatever authorities happen to be over us is just how it is. At some level, that, that, that dynamic, you know, Christians sitting under various worldly, ungodly authorities who don't belong to the shepherd of their souls, well, well that's just how it's going to be in this life. Nor do I believe we can say that Peter intends here that we simply should do whatever those various authorities would have us do. To be subject to an authority doesn't mean necessarily following their every word because obviously the word of God must come first. And so there's a tension to explore. Great examples of this can be found in actually what unfolded for the church very soon after Peter's letter here, such as later in the first century when the Roman emperor Domitian forced Christians to worship him as God the Lord. Clearly to do so would have been blasphemous against our Lord. Domitian had to send the Apostle John into exile on Patmos. The word of God must come first. Likewise, we see the same principle in Scripture itself long before Peter wrote these words here. For example, in Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down and worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. Or Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel refused to exchange his prayer to God for prayer to King Darius, as was decreed. That would have been blasphemous against our God for those men to do that. The kings uh, had to carry out sentence against those men of God because the word of God must come first. But we don't even have to go beyond the man of Peter himself to catch this truth. Peter, who wrote these most difficult and perplexing words to us about being subject to our authorities, to catch this point, for he himself knew that there were times when the worldly authorities over us simply cannot be obeyed. Do you recall last week, uh, we, we reflected on Acts chapter 4 and a healing miracle uh, where Peter and John healed the lame beggar at the temple gates as they were heading into the temple. Do you remember that miracle we reflected on? Uh, uh, and when they did that, they came into conflict with the Jewish Sanhedrin council. This was the key authority in their personal spiritual world at that time as Jews in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin council, 70 religious leaders for the nation, uh, all greatly displeased with Peter and John for telling everyone in Jerusalem about Jesus Christ and healing this man in his name. Well, listen to what happened next. 
in Acts chapter 4. When the Sanhedrin council had commanded Peter and John to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one else anymore in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. God's word must come first. And the next section of that scripture, all the believers prayed and rejoiced and and thanked God. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The very thing the Sanhedrin council had expressly insisted should not happen, happened. They went on speaking all the more the word of God about Jesus Christ. And so we've got to ask the question here, how were Peter and John and all those Jewish Christian believers in Jerusalem being subject to every human authority? As Peter now instructs us to do in this letter. Well, to be subject to worldly authorities doesn't mean just doing whatever they say. They will tell us to do all manner of ungodly things over the course of our life. But we must do good. We must do good. If they tell us uh, by one of those examples that we should worship some other god or, or maybe some man or to pray to some other god or even some man or, or just hold our tongues about the shepherd of our souls, well, well, then being subject to those authorities becomes more about submitting to their penalties and their harsh and unjust treatment against us. That's the call in this whole passage, if you look at it closely, that we should do good and not evil. So if and when needs be, we shall do good and silence the ignorance of those who are being foolish. If and when needs be, we shall do good and accept and endure any consequence of suffering or penalty that they bring to bear on us for doing that. In all likelihood, from from what we know of church tradition, both Peter and Paul both who called us to respect and be subject to our authorities, were executed for their unyielding and counter-cultural Christian faith, executed by the emperor whom they instructed us to be subject to. For through all this worldly respect that we must give, our highest authority is God who gives us this call to respect and honour everyone. We are to fear and serve God, verse 16 and 17. 
which explains the second part of this equation that Peter's putting in front of us today, as I've paraphrased it. We are to be in the world and, and therefore engaging the secular world around us all the time, but we are not to be of the world in how we live and how we relate with those other people. And hence this passage is, is all just simply about us doing good, not, not doing evil like those around us, but that in all situations we find ourselves in, we should seek and do what is good. Without doubt, it would be easier, I am sure, and it would come more naturally to us, I am very sure, that we should respond to the world around us in like-for-like kind. So easy that would be to do. No, but to this, verse 21, we have been called, that we should do good and in all things respond from a place of respect and honour for any and every other person whom God should put in our path as we live this life out in this fallen world. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And so there's a clear and and challenging answer here as to the question of, you know, how we should live in this world. But maybe we're also getting more insight on that other question around this, you know, why are we left in this world? Perhaps that's partly to model Christ to this world. This seems to be God's will, verse 12 and verse 15, that we should do good in the face of an evil and often hostile world. To this we have been called, verse 21. And the reason for that is is this shepherd of our souls who gave us the example that we are now to show to the world. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is something about us coming back to Jesus that enables great change in our lives now. And he wants us to change and to live here on out in the example that he has set down for us to follow. That the gospel is not just of him saving us, verse 24a, saving us from the penalty of judgment against our sin. No, but, but that he now intends to transform us away from sin altogether, verse 24b. As we learn more and more to walk in freedom, we are to learn more and more to walk like Jesus Christ. And the world living around us will see. They will see that the gospel is not just the hope of forgiveness, but the renewal, the transformation of sinners into changed, into honourable, respectful, good working people. They will see how we act and respond and they will know that we belong to the shepherd of souls and some of them, pray God, will be drawn to return to him too. We can't escape the 
the difficulty of this challenge. We can't escape the relevance of this challenge. The relevance of this teaching is just here for us, isn't it? It's in our face. And its importance in all of life is just there. I mean, the call is upon our interaction with every human authority, verse 13, and to all people, verse 17. We can't escape the reality that we live in the wider world for the time remaining in this life, and and nor can we escape the fact that uh, that brings with it all kinds of human authority over us and and no end of human contact with people around us, and and nor can we escape the fact that many of those people over us and around us have no connection yet to the overseer of souls. From the example Jesus set down for us, there, there is a certain posture There's a posture from which we are to live out our life in this world. It's a posture of faithfulness and humility. The faithful and humble posture of Jesus towards people who would would rather we did evil, like them, towards people who would mistreat us through their evil and their confusion and conflicting uh, way of life. We must be faithful nevertheless. We must be humble nevertheless in, in all of our dealings in this life. They around us might not yet be following the shepherd of our souls, but we are, brothers and sisters. We are his. We are his sheep, and we walk now in the way he has laid down for us to walk, and all the world will see the power of his gospel in us. Something about that, not not just in our lives, but but in those who are watching us. Something about that, this scripture says, will bring glory to God when our shepherd returns to take us home. But I suspect we all have quite a way to go in terms of catching this posture of how to be in the world but not of this world. Maybe, I reckon, maybe we haven't been living out that posture all that well. Maybe we haven't held closely to God's call here to to be faithful in doing what is good in our life. Maybe we're too easily led astray by the various calls of the world and the sinful desires that are still lingering within us. Or maybe we've taken a proud posture in our walk of faith, a rebellious or even disrespectful posture in in our yet-to-mature souls. If we're willing to submit to this scripture, then the question we now have to wrestle with is is the what of all this. I mean, what would be an honourable way to act in, in this situation or that in life? What kind of good might we do? What would it look like to respond respectfully to those who are lost or, or, or set against us even? The how and, and even the why are sort of being given to us here, but, but the details of fleshing this out into the what, well, that's in front of us to do, isn't it? We must engage that question. We must embrace this difficult call and, and wrestle this out as to what this should look like in, in this situation and that over the course of our lives. And we must start that quest by searching our lives with some probing questions around what Peter has put to us here. We're saved and left in the world. Have we started to become of the world again? Are we being ruled by our sinful desires? 
Is the unsaved world around us subtly leading us astray? Are we respectful, honouring of other people and of all people? Are we dismissive or harsh with those outside the faith, contrary to what Jesus is calling us to here? Do we respond graciously to those in positions of authority over us? To those who hate us and treat us unfairly? Do we seek to do good in response to evil? Are we loving of the brotherhood? Are we fearing and serving our God? We're not of the world anymore, but but called of Christ to live as Christ in this world. We must take that call seriously and carefully as, as we map out the rest of this life. There it is in front of us in the word of God. Let me pray for us as we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture as always and this call that comes to us today in First Peter. We pray that you would help us to, to apply these truths to our own lives, to go away and figure out uh, and uh, scrutinise ourselves and, and figure out uh, the what of this and, and where we need to change. We seek your glory, but we confess that sometimes we do get this call uh, and the posture in this call disastrously wrong. So please forgive us for those times we have acted in an unchristlike way in response to this world. And teach us, rather, and strengthen us more to be more like Christ to, towards everyone around us in this world. That you may be glorified. We pray you would work this change in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.